Chapter Five of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six, Part One. Joan of Naples by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. The terrible part that Charles of Durazzo was to play began as soon as this crime was accomplished. The duke left the corpse two whole days exposed to the wind and the rain, unburied and dishonored, the corpse of a man whom the pope had made king of Sicily and Jerusalem, so that the indignation of the mob might be increased by the dreadful sight. On the third he ordered it to be conveyed with the utmost pomp to the cathedral of Naples, and assembling all the Hungarians around the catafalque, he thus addressed them in a voice of thunder. "'Nobles and commoners, behold our king hanged like a dog by infamous traitors!' God will soon make known to us the names of all the guilty. Let those who desire that justice may be done hold up their hands and swear against murderers bloody persecution, implacable hatred, everlasting vengeance. It was this one man's cry that brought death and desolation to the murderers' hearts, and the people dispersed about the town, shrieking, Vengeance! Vengeance! Divine justice, which knows naught of privilege and respects no crown, struck Joan first of all in her love. When the two lovers first met, both were seized alike with terror and disgust. They recoiled trembling, and the queen seeing in Bertrand her husband's executioner, and he in her the cause of his crime, possibly of his speedy punishment. Bertrand's looks were disordered, his cheeks hollow, his eyes encircled with black rings, his mouth horribly distorted, his arm and forefinger extended towards his accomplice. He seemed to behold a frightful vision rising before him. The same cord he had used when he strangled André, he now saw round the queen's neck, so tight that it made its way into her flesh. An invisible force, a satanic impulse, urged him to strangle with his own hands the woman he had loved so dearly, had at one time adored on his knees. The count rushed out of the room with gestures of desperation, muttering incoherent words as he showed plain signs of mental aberration. His father, Charles of Artois, took him away and they went that same evening to their palace of St. Agatha, and there prepared a defense in case they should be attacked. But Joan's punishment, which was destined to be slow as well as dreadful, to last thirty-seven years and end in a ghastly death, was now only beginning. All the wretched beings who were stained with André's death came in turn to her to demand the price of blood. The Catanese and her son, who held in their hands not only the queen's honor but her life, now became doubly greedy and exacting. Dona Cancha no longer put any bridle on her licentiousness, and the Empress of Constantinople ordered her niece to marry her eldest son, Robert, Prince of Tarentum. Joan, consumed by remorse, full of indignation and shame at the arrogant conduct of her subjects, dared scarcely lift her head, and stooped to entreaties, only stipulating for a few days' delay before giving her answer. The Empress consented, on condition that her son should come to reside at Castel Nuovo, with permission to see the Queen once a day. Joan bowed her head in silence, and Robert of Tarentum was installed at the castle. Charles of Durazzo, who by the death of André had practically become the head of the family, and would, by the terms of his grandfather's will, inherit the kingdom by right of his wife Marie, in case of Joan's dying without lawful issue, sent to the queen two commands. First, that she should not dream of contracting a new marriage without first consulting him and the choice of a husband. Secondly, that she should invest in him at once the title of Duke of Calabria, to compel his cousin to make these two concessions, he added that if she should be so ill-advised as to refuse either of them, he should hand over to justice the proofs of the crime and the names of the murderers. Joan, bending beneath the weight of this new difficulty, could think of no way to avoid it. But Catherine, 
who alone was stout enough to fight his nephew of hers, insisted that they must strike at the Duke of Durazzo in his ambition and hopes, and tell him to begin with, what was the fact, that the queen was pregnant. If, in spite of this news, he persisted in his plans, she would find some means or other, she said, of causing trouble and discord in her nephew's family, and wounding him in his most intimate affections or closest interests, by publicly dishonoring him through his wife or his mother. Charles smiled coldly when his aunt came to tell him from the queen that she was about to bring into the world an infant, André's posthumous child. What importance could a babe yet unborn possibly have? As a fact, it lived only a few months, and the eyes of a man who with such admirable coolness got rid of people who stood in his way, and that, moreover, by the hand of his own enemies? He told the empress that the happy news she had condescended to bring him in person, far from diminishing his kindness towards his cousin, inspired him rather with more interest and goodwill, that, consequently, he reiterated his suggestion and renewed his promise not to seek vengeance for his dear André, since in a certain sense the crime was not complete should a child be destined to survive. But in case of a refusal, he declared himself inexorable. He cleverly gave Catherine to understand that, as she had some interest herself in the prince's death, she ought for her own sake to persuade the queen to stop legal proceedings. The empress seemed to be deeply impressed by her nephew's threatening attitude, and promised to do her best to persuade the queen to grant all he asked, on condition, however, that Charles should allow the necessary time for carrying through so delicate a business. But Catherine profited by this delay to think out her own plan of revenge, and ensure the means of certain success. After starting several projects eagerly, and then regretfully abandoning them, she fixed upon an infernal and unheard-of scheme, which the mind would refuse to believe but for the unanimous testimony of historians. Poor Agnes of Duras, Charles's mother, had for some few days been suffering with an inexplicable weariness, a slow, painful malady with which her son's restlessness and violence may have not, not a little to do. The empress resolved that the first effect of her hatred was to fall upon this unhappy mother. She summoned the Count of Terlizzi and Donna Cancha, his mistress, who by the queen's orders had been attending Agnes since her illness began. Catherine suggested to the young chamberwoman, who was at that time with child, that she should deceive the doctor by representing that certain signs of her own condition really belonged to the sick woman, so that he, deceived by the false indications, should be compelled to admit to Charles of Durazzo that his mother was guilty and dishonored. The Count of Terlizzi, who ever since he had taken part in the regicide, trembled in fear of discovery, had nothing to oppose to the empress's desire, and Donna Cancha, whose head was as light as her heart was corrupt, seized with a foolish gaiety on any chance of taking her revenge on the prudery of the only princess of the blood who led a pure life at a court that was renowned for its depravity. Once assured that her accomplices would be prudent and obedient, Catherine began to spread abroad certain vague and dubious but terribly serious rumors, only needing proof, and soon after the cruel accusation was started it was repeated again and again in confidence, until it reached the ears of Charles. At this amazing revelation the duke was seized with a fit of trembling. He sent instantly for the doctor and asked imperiously what was the cause of his mother's malady. The doctor turned pale and stammered, but when Charles grew threatening he admitted that he had certain grounds for suspecting that the duchess was ancient. But, as he might easily have been deceived the first time, he would make a second investigation before pronouncing his opinion in so serious a matter. The next day, as the doctor came out of the bedroom, the duke met him, and interrogating him with an agonized gesture could only judge by the silence that his fears were too well confirmed. But the doctor, with excess of caution, 
declared that he would make a third trial. Condemned criminals can suffer no worse than Charles in the long hours that passed before that fatal moment when he learned that his mother was indeed guilty. On the third day the doctor stated on his soul and conscience that Agnes of Durazzo was pregnant. "'Very good,' said Charles, dismissing the doctor with no sign of emotion. That evening the duchess took a medicine ordered by the doctor, and when, half an hour later, she was assailed with violent pains, the duke was warned that perhaps other physicians ought to be consulted, as the prescription of the ordinary doctor, instead of bringing about an improvement in her state, had only made her worse. Charles slowly went up to the duchess's room, and sending away all the people who were standing round her bed, on the pretext that they were clumsy and made his mother worse, he shut the door, and they were alone. Then poor Agnes, forgetting her internal agony when she saw her son, pressed his hand tenderly and smiled through her tears. Charles, pale beneath his bronzed complexion, his forehead moist with a cold sweat and his eyes horribly dilated, bent over the sick woman and asked her gloomily, "'Are you a little better, mother?' "'Ah, I am in pain, in frightful pain, my poor Charles. I feel as though I have molten lead in my veins. Oh, my son, call your brothers so that I may give you all my blessing for the last time.' for I cannot hold out long against this pain. I am burning. Mercy, call a doctor. I know I have been poisoned. Charles did not stir from the bedside. Water, cried the dying woman in a broken voice. Water, a doctor, a confessor, my children, I want my children. And as the duke paid no heed, but stood moodily silent, the poor mother, prostrated by pain, fancied that grief had robbed her son of all power of speech or movement, and so by a desperate effort sat up and seized him by the arm, cried with all the strength she could muster, "'Charles, my son, what is it? My poor boy, courage! It is nothing, I hope. But quick, call for help. Call a doctor. Ah, you have no idea of what I suffer.' "'Your doctor,' said Charles, slowly and coldly, each word piercing his mother's heart like a dagger. "'Your doctor?' cannot come oh why asked agnes stupefied because no one ought to live who knows the secret of our shame unhappy man she cried overwhelmed with pain and terror you have murdered him perhaps you have poisoned your own mother too charles have mercy on your own soul it is your doing said charles without show of emotion you have driven me into crime and despair. You have caused my dishonor in this world and my damnation in the next. What are you saying, my own Charles? Have mercy. Do not let me die in this horrible uncertainty. What fatal delusion is binding you? Speak, my son, speak. I am not feeling the poison now. What have I done? Of what have I been accused? She looked with haggard eyes at her son. Her maternal love still struggled against the awful thought of matricide. At last, seeing that Charles remained speechless in spite of her entreaties, she repeated with a piercing cry, "'Speak, in God's name, before I die!' "'Mother, you are with child.' "'What?' cried Agnes with a loud cry, which broke her very heart. "'Oh, God, forgive him! Charles, your mother forgives and blesses you in death!' Charles fell upon her neck, desperately crying for help. He would now have gladly saved her at the cost of his life, but it was too late. He uttered one cry that came from his heart, 
and was found stretched out upon his mother's corpse. Strange comments were made at the court on the death of the Duchess of Durazzo and her doctor's disappearance, but there was no doubt at all that grief and gloom were furrowing wrinkles on Charles's brow, which was already sad enough. Catherine alone knew the terrible cause of her nephew's depression, for to her it was very plain that the duke at one blow had killed his mother and her physician. But she had never expected a reaction so sudden and violent in a man who shrank before no crime. She had thought Charles capable of everything except remorse. His gloomy, self-absorbed silence seemed a bad augury for her plans. She had desired to cause trouble for him in his own family so that he might have no time to oppose the marriage of her son with the queen, but she had shot beyond her mark and Charles, started thus on the terrible path of crime, had now broken through the bonds of his holiest affections, and gave himself up to his bad passions with feverish ardor and a savage desire for revenge. Then Catherine had recourse to gentleness and submission. She gave her son to understand that there was only one way of obtaining the queen's hand, and that was by flattering the ambition of Charles, and in some sort submitting himself to his patronage. Robert of Tarentum understood this, and ceased making court to Joan, who received his devotion with cool kindness and attached himself closely to Charles, paying him much the same sort of respect and deference that he himself had affected for André, when the thought was first in his mind of causing his ruin. But the Duke of Durazzo was by no means deceived as to the devoted friendships shown towards him by the heir of the house of Tarentum, and pretending to be deeply touched by the unexpected change of feeling, he had all the time kept a strict guard on Robert's actions." An event outside all human foresight occurred to upset the calculations of the two cousins. One day, while they were out together on horseback, as they often were since their pretended reconciliation, Louis of Tarentum, Robert's youngest brother, who had always felt for Joan a chivalrous, innocent love, a love which a young man of twenty is apt to lock up in his heart as a secret treasure, Louis, we say, who had held aloof from the infamous family conspiracy and had not soiled his hands with André's blood, drawn on by an irrepressible passion, all at once appeared at the gates of Castel Nuovo, and while his brother was wasting precious hours in asking for a promise of marriage, had the bridge raised and gave the soldiers strict orders to admit no one. Then, never troubling himself about Charles's anger or Robert's jealousy, he hurried to the queen's room, and there, says Domenico Gravina, without any preamble, the union was consummated. On returning from his ride, Robert, astonished that the bridge was not at once lowered for him, at first loudly called upon the soldiers on guard at the fortress, threatening severe punishment for their unpardonable negligence. But as the gates did not open and the soldiers made no sign of fear or regret, he fell into a violent fit of rage and swore he would hang the wretches like dogs for hindering his return home. But the Empress of Constantinople, terrified at the bloody quarrel beginning between the two brothers, went alone and on foot to her son, and making use of her maternal authority to beg him to master his feelings, there in the presence of the crowd that had come up hastily to witness the strange scene, she related in a low voice all that had passed in his absence. A roar as of a wounded tiger escaped from Robert's breast. All but blind with rage, he nearly trampled his mother under the feet of his horse, which seemed to feel his master's anger and, plunging violently, breathed blood from his nostrils. When the prince had poured every possible execration on his brother's head, he turned and galloped away from the accursed castle, flying to the Duke of Durazzo, whom he had only just left to tell him of this outrage and stir him to revenge. Charles was talking carelessly with his young wife, who was but little used to such tranquil conversation and expansiveness, when the prince of Tarentum, exhausted, out of breath, bathed in perspiration, came up with his incredible tale. Charles made him say it twice over, 
so impossible did Louis's audacious enterprise appear to him. Then, quickly changing from doubt to fury, he struck his brow with his iron glove, saying that as the queen defied him, he would make her tremble even in her castle and in her lover's arms. He threw one withering look on Marie, who interceded tearfully for her sister, and pressing Robert's hand with warmth, vowed that so long as he lived, Louis should never be Joan's husband. That same evening he shut himself up in his study and wrote letters whose effect soon appeared. A bull, dated June 2, 1346, was addressed to Bertram de Beau, chief justice of the kingdom of Sicily and Count de Montescoglioso, with orders to make the most strict inquiries concerning André's murderers, whom the Pope likewise laid under his anathema, and to punish them with the utmost rigor of the law. But a secret note was appended to the bull, which was quite at variance with the designs of Charles. The sovereign pontiff expressly bade the chief justice not to implicate the queen in the proceedings or the princes of the blood, so as to avoid worse disturbances, reserving as supreme head of the church and lord of the kingdom the right of judging them later on as his wisdom might dictate. For this imposing trial, Bertram de Beau made great preparations. A platform was erected in the great hall of tribunal, and all the officers of the crown and great state dignitaries, and all the chief barons had a place behind the enclosure where the magistrates sat. Three days after Clement the Sixth's bull had been published in the capital, the chief justice was ready for a public examination of two accused persons. The two culprits who had first fallen into the hands of justice were, as one may easily suppose, those whose condition was least exalted, whose lives were least valuable. Tommaso Pace and Nicolas of Milazzo. They were led before the tribunal to be first of all tortured, as was the custom. As they approached the judges, the notary passing by Charles in the street had time to say in a low voice, "'My lord, the time has come to give my life for you. I will do my duty. I commend my wife and children to you.' Encouraged by a nod from his patron, he walked on firmly and deliberately. The chief justice, after establishing the identity of the accused, gave them over to the executioner and his men to be tortured in the public square, so that their sufferings might serve as a show and an example to the crowd. But no sooner was Tommaso Pace tied to the rope, when to the great disappointment of all, he declared that he would confess everything, and asked accordingly to be taken back before his judges. At these words, the Count of Terlizzi, who was following every movement of the two men with mortal anxiety, thought it was all over now with him and his accomplices. And so, when Tommaso Pace was turning his steps toward the great hall, led by two guards, his hands tied behind his back and followed by the notary, he contrived to take him into a secluded house, and squeezing his throat with great force, made him thus put his tongue out, whereupon he cut it off with a sharp razor. The yells of the poor wretch so cruelly mutilated fell on the ears of the Duke of Durazzo. He found his way into the room where the barbarous act had been committed just as the Count of Terlizzi was coming out and approached the notary who had been present at the dreadful spectacle, and had not given the least sign of fear or emotion. Master Nicholas, thinking the same fate was in store for him, turned calmly to the duke, saying with a sad smile, "'My lord, the precaution is useless. There is no need for you to cut out my tongue, as the noble count has done to my poor companion. The last scrap of my flesh may be torn off without one word being dragged from my mouth. I have promised, my lord.' and you have the life of my wife and the future of my children as guarantee for my word i do not ask for silence said the duke solemnly you can free me from all my enemies at once and i order you to denounce them at the tribunal the notary bowed his head with mournful resignation then raising it in a fright made one step up to the duke and murmured 
in a choking voice. "'And the queen?' "'No one would believe you if you ventured to denounce her. "'But when the Catanese and her son, "'the Count of Terlitzi and his wife and her most intimate friends, "'have been accused by you, "'when they fail to endure the torture, "'and when they denounce her unanimously?' "'I see, my lord. "'You do not only want my life. "'You would have my soul, too. "'Very well. "'Once more I commend to you my children.' With a deep sigh, he walked up to the tribunal. The chief justice asked Tommaso Pace the usual questions, and a shudder of horror passed through the assembly when they saw the poor wretch, in desperation, opening his mouth, which streamed with blood. But surprise and terror reached their height when Nicholas of Malazzo slowly and firmly gave a list of Andre's murderers, all except the queen and the princes of the blood, and went on to give all details of the assassination. Proceedings were at once taken for the arrest of the Grand Seneschal, Robert of Cabane, and the Counts of Terlitzi and Marconi, who were present and had not ventured to make any movement in self-defense. An hour later, Philippa, her two daughters, and Donna Cancha joined them in prison, after vainly imploring the Queen's protection. Charles and Bertrand of Artois, shut up in their fortress of St. Agatha, bade defiance to justice and several others, among them the Counts of Meleto and Catanzaro, escaped by flight. As soon as Master Nicholas said he had nothing further to confess, and that he had spoken the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the Chief Justice pronounced sentence amid a profound silence, and without delay, Tommaso Pace and the notary were tied to the tails of two horses, dragged through the chief streets of the town, and hanged in the marketplace. The other prisoners were thrown into a subterranean vault, to be questioned and put to the torture on the following day. In the evening, finding themselves in the same dungeon, they reproached one another each pretending he had been dragged into the crime by someone else. Then Donna Concha, whose strange character knew no inconsistencies, even face to face with death and torture, drowned with a great burst of laughter the lamentations of her companions and joyously exclaimed, "'Look here, friends! Why these bitter recriminations, this ill-mannered raving? We have no excuses to make, and we are all equally guilty. I am the youngest of all, and not the ugliest, by your leave, ladies.' but if i am condemned at least i will die cheerfully for i have never denied myself any pleasure i could get in this world and i can boast that much will be forgiven me for i have loved much of that you gentlemen know something you bad old man she continued to the count of terlitzi do you not remember lying by my side in the queen's antechamber come no blushes before your noble family confess my lord that i am with child by your excellency and you know how we managed to make up the story of poor Agnes of Durazzo and her pregnancy. God rest her soul! For my part, I never supposed the joke would take such a serious turn all at once. You know all this and much more. Spare your lamentations, for, by my word, they are getting very tiresome. Let us prepare to die joyously, as we have lived. With these words she yawned slightly and lying down on the straw, fell into a deep sleep and dreamed as happy dreams as she ever had dreamed in her life. On the morrow, from break of day, there was an immense crowd on the seafront. During the night, an enormous palisade had been put up to keep the people away far enough for them to see the accused without hearing anything. Charles of Durazzo, at the head of a brilliant cortege of knights and pages, mounted on a magnificent horse, all in black, as a sign of mourning, waited near the enclosure. Ferocious joy shone in his eyes as the accused made their way through the crowd two by two, their wrists tied with ropes, for the duke every minute expected to hear the queen's name spoken. 
but the chief justice, a man of experience, had prevented indiscretion of any kind by fixing a hook in the tongue of each one. The poor creatures were tortured on a ship, so that nobody should hear the terrible confessions their sufferings dragged from them. But Joan, in spite of the wrongs that most of the conspirators had done her, felt a renewal of pity for the woman she had once respected as a mother, for her childish companions and her friends, and possibly also some remains of love for Robert of Cabane, and sent two messengers to beg Bertram de Beau to show mercy to the culprits. But the chief justice seized these men and had them tortured, and on their confession that they were also implicated in Andre's murder, he condemned them to the same punishment as the others. Donna Cancha alone, by reason of her situation, escaped the torture, and her sentence was deferred till the day of her confinement. As this beautiful girl was returning to prison with many a smile for all the handsomest cavaliers she could see in the crowd, she gave a sign to Charles of Durazzo, as she neared him to come forward, and since her tongue had not been pierced, for the same reason, with an iron instrument, she said some words to him a while in a low voice. Charles turned fearfully pale, and putting his hand to his sword, cried, "'Wretched woman!' "'You forget, my lord. I am under the protection of the law.' "'My mother! Oh, my poor mother!' murmured Charles in a choked voice, and he fell backward. The next morning the people were beforehand with the executioner, loudly demanding their prey. All the national troops and mercenaries that the judicial authorities could command were echeloned in on the streets, opposing a sort of dam to the torrent of the raging crowd. The sudden insatiable cruelty that too often degrades human nature had awakened in the populace, all heads were turned with hatred and frenzy, all imaginations inflamed with the passion for revenge. Groups of men and women, roaring like wild beasts, threatened to knock down the walls of the prison if the condemned were not handed over to them to take the place of punishment. A great murmur arose, continuous, ever the same, like the growling of thunder. The queen's heart was petrified with terror. But, in spite of the desire of Bertram de Beau to satisfy the popular wish, the preparations for the solemn execution were not compelled till midday, when the sun's rays fell scorchingly upon the town. There went up a mighty cry from ten thousand palpitating breasts when a report first ran through the crowd that the prisoners were about to appear. There was a moment of silence, and the prison doors rolled slowly back on their hinges with a rusty grating noise. A triple row of horsemen with lowered visor and lance in rest started the procession, and amid yells and curses the condemned prisoners came out one by one each tied upon a cart, gagged and naked to the waist, in charge of two executioners whose orders were to torture them the whole length of their way. On the first cart was the former laundress of Catana, afterwards wife of the Grand Seneschal and governess to the Queen, Philippa of Cabane. The two executioners at right and left of her scourged her with such fury that the blood spurting up from the wounds left a long track in all the streets passed by the cortege. Immediately following their mother on separate carts came the countesses of Terlizzi and Marconi, the elder no more than eighteen years of age. The two sisters were so marvelously beautiful that in the crowd a murmur of surprise was heard, and greedy eyes were fixed upon their naked, trembling shoulders. But the men charged to torture them gazed with ferocious smiles upon their forms of seductive beauty, and armed with sharp knives cut off pieces of their flesh with a deliberate enjoyment and threw them out to the crowd who eagerly struggled to get them signing to the executioners to show which part of the victims bodies they preferred robert of cabane the grand seneschal the counts of terlizzi and marconi 
Raymond Pache, brother of the old valet who had been executed the day before, and many more, were dragged on similar carts, and both scourged with ropes and slashed with knives. Their flesh was torn out with red-hot pinchers and flung upon brazen chafing dishes. No cry of pain was heard from the Grand Seneschal. He never stirred once in his frightful agony, yet the tortures put such fury into their work that the poor wretch was dead before the goal was reached. In the center of the square of St. Eligius, an immense stake was set up, and there the prisoners were taken, and what was left of their mutilated bodies was thrown into the flames. The Count of Terlizzi and the Grand Seneschal's widow were still alive, and two tears of blood ran down the cheeks of the miserable mother as she saw her son's corpse and the palpitating remains of her two daughters cast upon the fire. They, by their stifled cries, showed that they had not ceased to suffer. But suddenly a fearful noise overpowered the groans of the victims. The enclosure was broken and overturned by the mob. Like madmen they rushed at the burning pile, armed with sabers, axes, and knives, and snatching the bodies, dead or alive, from the flames, tore them to pieces, carrying off the bones to make whistles or handles for their daggers as a souvenir of this horrible day. End of chapter 5 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia